joining us online I want to say welcome to you. Um, I think I heard a little bit this morning it sounds like there's some uh, skill saws and stuff going on outside. Those of you walking in a little bit ago I think somebody's building something right over there. So if you're in the room and you hear that that's what's going on. If you're not in the room you probably won't hear it. So everything I just said you're like why did he say that? Um, so today we are going to hop back in uh, to our series in the Gospel of John. We are 44 weeks in and we're about halfway through John. So I'm planning to wrap this series up in 2026. And uh, just, kidding, just kidding. Hopefully before then. Um, we did have a reason to take about a 13-month break to talk about other things. Uh, but we are going to be hopping back into uh, that this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, you can open it to John. We're going to be in chapter 11. And uh, we're going to hear from Hannah in a little bit. But just want to set that up this morning. Um, by just kind of reintroducing you to the Gospel of John again. Uh, a couple things to remember, that John is writing a specific uh, way. He's not necessarily telling you things in uh, chronological order to give you a history of events. He's trying to tell a deeper story uh, than that. And so um, you should know that as you get into the Gospel of John. Now, if those of you who are either watching or in the room are like, wait a minute, what, what about the redevelopment out of that stuff that we were doing for the last six weeks? What happened with that? Um, we're still moving intentionally in that direction. A few of you have had a specific conversation with me about, hey, can you play this role moving forward? And so we're continuing to do that with some intention. But for the time being, those conversations are going to move now to more one-on-one -on -one conversations. So you should probably expect to hear from me in the next little bit as I start to just reach out and ask uh, many of us, where, where do you find yourself with thinking about membership as a member here at Lansdowne Alliance? What about serving? Where do you feel gifted? How can we? So those are going to become more one-on-one -on -one conversations. Uh, and so just don't be surprised if I call you or set up a, a, a coffee meeting, probably at the Panera on Nursery Road, because that's like my favorite spot, um, to talk about those things. But for now, let's get back into the Gospel of John. Uh, because it's good for us to just walk through verse by verse, section by section, a book of the Bible. This is God's word to us. And so the reminder for us of the Gospel of John is what John tells us his purpose is in the Gospel of John itself, uh, which is in John 20, verses 30 to 31. We've said this a number of times. Why did John write this? Why did he give us this Gospel? Well, John tells us very explicitly in the closing of his book, why he wrote this book. So this is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says this, and the heading in the ESV is the purpose of this book. So it's pretty clear. He says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning all the things that Jesus did in this book that point to who he is, these things, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's entire purpose for writing this book. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit 
to write this book, but he has a purpose. And that purpose is that you, anybody hearing those words that I just read to you from the gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is somebody specific, that he is the Christ, the son of God. Now the Christ is a specific title uh, for the Messiah, the one who will come to save humanity. If you're a little bit older like me and you remember the Matrix series, He's the one, okay? Now, I know every pastor back in the day was like, oh, the Matrix is like the gospel. Let's show the movie clips, uh, including me and my pastor. So, um, but he is the one, right? He's like Neo that comes. So whenever you have that feeling or those thoughts of like, who's gonna save me from the mess of my life? Who can I turn to to save me? Who will rescue me from this? Who will rescue me from this body of death as we read in the Bible? John is saying to you, it's Jesus. He's the one. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. That's actually a really good way to think about this title of Christ. It means anointed one in the Hebrew. So in our vernacular, it could be simply the one. So John is saying, I'm writing this to you so that you'll know that Jesus is the one that can save you, that he's the son of God who can rescue you. And if nobody's reminded you of that lately, you need rescuing. Right? We all need rescuing from ourselves and from the consequences of sin around us. And so that's what John is writing for. But then he goes on to tell us what happens when we believe that Jesus is the one, when we trust in him. John says that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is another thread that runs through John, that you would have eternal life. Now, this life here is twofold. And, and after more than a year of death right? And disease and sickness being thrown in our face. I want you to hear this. The offer of God as told to us by John is that in believing in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And I've been doing some reading lately on a specific theological issue, which I'm, you know, I'm still reading on. But one of the pieces of language that that conversation uses is that the gift of Jesus to us is the gift of immortality with God. And that's a way to say that, that I don't, I haven't said very much, but it's a good way to say it. That's the offer on the table. You can live an immortal life with God forever. That's the offer that Jesus has for you. That's the prize at the end of all this, life with God. But that eternal life, as John puts it, isn't just about an immortality that begins after our natural death. That immortality begins now that you begin to live into the reality of life with God as a citizen of his kingdom, first and foremost, right now. Like right now, you are, if you believe in Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, you are living eternal life in the presence of God now. You're gonna fully know it more later, but right now you're already living that. So that's why John has written these things. That's why John has written everything in his gospel, so that you might believe that. And in believing that, be granted the gift of life with Jesus forever. Today's section is, is another display of that, a really poignant, powerful display of Jesus' lordship over life and death, right? So if you're watching this online, you're like, who's this Jesus? He is the Lord of life and death. That's one of the things he has lordship over. So Hannah, I've invited to come up, and she's going to actually read to us the text we're going to be exploring today, and then we're going to dig in. So let me do a little setup for you, Hannah. I'll be reading from John 11, 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, 
He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin and said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man 
also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Thanks, Anna. I've been in church my whole life. I've heard a lot of people read scripture. That was smooth, Hannah. That was smooth. Uh, I was telling Jimler before the service started, uh, whenever the, I hear this story read and we get to verse 39 where Jesus says, take away the stone, I'm always like, oh, he's going to do it. You know, like, oh, it's getting ready. And so I get excited when I hear this story. If you're a Christian and you know the story of Lazarus, this is a beautiful story. And it's, it's really, it's a story about perspectives. Jesus earlier, and I, I, I can remember preaching this to you under the, the, the maple trees in front of my house. So it was like last year sometime. But I remember talking about Jesus when he said, you are from below and I am from above. And so you have these perspectives happening. And, and in this story, that's especially true. Many times in our lives, we're faced with situations where we're required to see things from another perspective, right? Uh, if you've ever flown in an airplane over land that you're familiar with, like if you've ever flown back home from somewhere and you see like where the city where you live from the airplane, it's a completely different perspective uh, than what it looks like on the ground. Or maybe if you've ever flown over the Midwest and you're like, that's what farms look like, just little squares and circles. But on the ground, they don't look like that, right? Because it's a different perspective. This story is about the divine perspective of Jesus and the earthly perspective of Martha and Mary and really those who are around. And so this text, I think, is like a medicine for our souls because Lazarus' death is in many ways symbolic of the realities of kind of human life, of the things we encounter and so his death in many ways symbolizes all those things. And so Jesus' approach also shows us how our heavenly father feels and deals with uh, the things that we face in life, the realities. And so this story teaches us about these two perspectives. So let's get into some background in all this. And, and I was giving Jimler a little preview of, of some of the stuff in the sermon earlier because he was asking me questions. And when you preach, this stuff is like fresh in your mind on Sunday. And so uh, let's do some background. After this, uh, the, you remember the, the confrontations, I hope you remember, earlier in uh, John's gospel, Jesus has these confrontations at the temple. And so Jesus then, uh, he goes into the wilderness to carry on his ministry. We see that in chapter 10, verse 40. And so the last verse in John 10 says, and you saw this 
almost little refrain, even in what Hannah read a little bit ago, is that many believed in him there. That's, remember, John's purpose. And so Jesus is, is experiencing fruitful ministry. Uh, but while he's there, this personal emergency uh, arises in Bethany. Uh, and so we, we heard it earlier from the first part of chapter 11. The, the emergency here involves this really a special little family of three. This, this, this Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are kind of near and dear to Jesus' heart. Martha was uh, um, devout. Mary loved to sit at Jesus' feet and really think deeply about him and about his teachings. That's kind of what we, the picture we get of Mary. And, and again, Martha is just as devout as her, but she's devout in kind of a busy way. She's the one who seems to have the gift of service, even to the point where maybe she overdoes it a little. If you remember the story, Jesus says, Martha, you're concerned about many things, but I'm here, be with me, right? And so then there's Lazarus. And so from what we can gather, he must have been their younger brother based on this story because he seems to not have any responsibilities in the family. Uh, that, that maybe is conjecture, but it seems uh, reasonable that he's probably the younger brother. And so this family, for whatever reason, is close to Jesus. He seems to have a unique personal kind of affection for them. And so we know from the other Gospels that Jesus liked being around them. He liked being in their house. They were kind of his like one of his friend places that he could hang out. It was a place where he could, um, you know, kind of just relax. Uh, I was going to say let his hair down, but that's weird because I don't know if he had long hair or not. But uh, relax and, and kind of just be himself, right? They, they were friends. And so the hospitality of this little house uh, is, is probably known well by Jesus and his disciples in this little band. So, but things had changed. And the household now is, in, is kind of like, I don't know if you've been in a house where somebody's really, really sick. Uh, but house, that house kind of gets into disarray a little bit. Things aren't quite the same as they are when everybody's healthy and doing their thing. Uh, it appears from the story that like Lazarus, is, he's going to die at any moment. He's, he's sick to the point of death. And so uh, these women are taking care of him. They're doing their best. We can assume that from the story. And so no wonder they send for Jesus. But I want you to notice this in verse 3. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So they're, they're using Jesus' affection to sort of say, hey, this person that you really love is sick. Now, this is not a request. Notice that. It's not a question, right? The cynical part of me is like, well, they're ladies. That's how they do it. They give us code that we're supposed to interpret, right? And so they say to him, hey, Lazarus is sick. But why do they say that? It's because they have the relationship with Jesus to know that if he heard that, he would help. That's what he would do. He's their friend. He would hurry there, right? This is what they knew of Jesus. They understood his compassion. And so they say to him, the one you love is sick. And the word they use there for love is the word for friendship. They're saying your, your dear friend is sick. We want you to know that so that you can be compassionate. And of, of course, right, if you're them, don't, like shut off that you know the rest of the story. But if you're them, you're expecting Jesus, your friend that you love is sick, and Jesus is going to show up in a couple days. And so to think otherwise was just they couldn't even conceive of it. But Jesus' answer in verse 4 gives us a little hint of this idea of perspectives. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So in other words, death is not going to have the final answer in this man's life right now. Something different is about to happen and its purpose is to bring glory to Jesus. And so the heart of this text then comes in verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that two sentences doesn't make any sense on the surface. He loved them, so he stayed where he was for two more days. Right? That sounds crazy. Uh, The word translated love there is different than the love that the sisters used. It's the word agape. That's God's unstoppable, eternal, uh, ever increasing and drawing you in kind of love. That's the love that Jesus loves us with. That's the love that Jesus loves you with, if you're watching and and joining us online. Knowing this, uh, we might expect that the Bible would say then, Jesus, upon hearing that Lazarus was sick, went to one of his disciples, found a horse, rode as fast as he could to be with Lazarus. That's kind of what we would expect. Frankly, that's probably what you would expect like me, your pastor, to do if you heard somebody was sick, except the car, a car, not a horse. But that's not what our text says, right? Our text says he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much that he actually stayed away. That's just crazy. So from the ground level perspective, it can sometimes appear to us, and many of you have felt this way the last year, that, that although we're Jesus' children and we love him and he loves us, he, he like forgot about us or something. The message didn't get through. What's going on? Right? At times, humanly speaking, our circumstances seem to give us no other interpretation besides that. that that's a struggle when it comes to perspectives. I think about uh, Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up in Potiphar's house. He works hard. He has integrity. He's devout. He rises to the top, and then he is completely um, toppled from that position because he wouldn't compromise himself with Potiphar's wife. As a result, he ends up in prison. He works hard. He gains status again, and then um, he ends up where he ends up, and again, it feels like God has forgotten about him or forsaken him. And so, Joseph honors God as a young man, but it seems like God doesn't care about him any longer, right? That's his perspective on the ground. And, and if we're honest, I think all of us would say that we've had that perspective. Like when you're in the moment, it's that old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. All you can see is what's right in front of you. And it's difficult to believe in the goodness of God. And I think as a church family, it's good for us to normalize admitting that we struggle to believe that God is good sometimes. We don't have to act like we always believe perfectly because we don't. But John 11 takes our perspective from down here and lifts it to kind of a divine perspective. It explains to us who are Christ's devoted children who love him that no matter how it appears, sometimes God's delay is out of love for us somehow that we can't see in the moment. That's what our text is saying. When we're being sort of beaten down by the events of life, it's very difficult to believe that God loves us, but John 11 comes along, and many other places in the scriptures come along, and say that these delays are somehow God's love for us. This is a moment when we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him. We trust his word over us, not our experience of life. What do we know about God? We know that he loves us. We know that he's all-powerful. We know that he can do anything, and he knows everything. He knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground, so he obviously cares about us and our plight. So him not acting can't be that he doesn't care. It must be that I don't understand. So how can we come to understand God's love, to really believe it despite 
the things that we go through? Well, first we have to recognize that we can never comprehend the completeness of God's working, right? We barely comprehend our own lives, let alone the eternality of God. So when delays come to us, hardships are upon us, and and we don't know what's going on, we can't expect to know all the details. And hasn't that been the story of our life for the last, whatever, 16 months? You know, this is where the rise of all different kinds of theories about things are coming from, because we don't have the answers to everything we want to have the answers to, and it drives us nuts, because we want to know. But if we spent all our time asking why, we would use our time in a very wasteful way. So here's a general principle, and I say general on purpose. (coughs) Jesus delayed coming to this group of faithful, loving disciples in Bethany so that their love and their unity actually would be strengthened in that moment. For two days, Jesus goes about his business far away. I got to believe he's thinking about this, though. He's a human. And he's, he's working for an extra two days. Uh, I imagine if you're Mary and Martha, knowing you sent word, it's not like you texted Jesus and you saw that he read the text. You send word to him and you're probably coming outside every couple hours, like, where is he? Maybe he's, is he coming over the hill? And then you're going back inside to look at Lazarus, who's not getting better. And then you're coming back outside, where's Jesus? And then you go back in and look at Lazarus and his breathing is getting worse. He's looking more pale. What are we going to do? Where is Jesus? And so this is the scene. And so after two days, Jesus now decides it's time to respond to the sister's message to him. So he says this, starting in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there again? Right? You feel the tone like, really? Really? Weren't you just in the temple with us? They were trying to kill you. Jesus answers, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Then the disciples think that he's talking about like natural sleep. He's going to wake up Jesus. But then Jesus tells them plainly, no, he's died. Sometimes God has to just tell us stuff plain. He's dead. Okay, but for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that what John's purpose, you may believe, but let's go to him. And so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now this is just uh, Thomas being like negative Nancy here, right? He, he's like, okay, all right, well, let's get ready to go back to Jerusalem so they can kill us too because they're gonna kill Jesus. They were just trying. That's Thomas's outlook on life, right? He's a bit on the gloomy side, but I actually think he probably is voicing what the disciples are feeling. You and I would feel the same thing. Okay, Jesus, I guess we're all going to die together in Jerusalem, right? They, they couldn't believe Jesus is heading right back into this trouble. And by now, Lazarus is dead. So what are we even going to do? Right? Imagine it, Martha and Mary, they're looking for Jesus. Lazarus looks bad, and now his breathing has stopped. He's gone. And so his sister's cry goes up from, the, from their house to the streets. The morning begins. They prepare Lazarus for burial. They put a white linen gown on him. They wrap him with bandages. They put spices on the body. You'll remember from Jesus' 
own death. This is what they were coming to the tomb to do. Then Martha and Mary lead a procession out to the grave. Uh, I found this interesting. Women are customarily first since it was prejudicially believed that since woman Eve first sins, death came through her. I guess we forget that life comes through women too, but whatever. At the grave, there are memorial speeches. So this is a drawn out thing. And by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, it's the fourth day, which is the sort of pinnacle of mourning because uh, this is when they believe that the body begins to decay. And so there's now no hope. The body is, is going now. It's, it's over. Listen to verses 17 through 20. When Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So Martha had evidently been made aware that Jesus uh, was outside, that he was kind of getting close. And so she, she probably, you know, like you do when you're at a, a, a gathering of people, you kind of just slip out without telling anybody. Uh, and she goes out to the outskirts of town to meet with Jesus and talk to him. And so imagine her. She's standing there. She's just lost her brother that she loves. She's probably grieving. She prob- she's, uh, she's looking disheveled, right? And so she looks at the Lord in verse 21 and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and how many times do you think Martha and Mary had said that in a day, couple days since Lazarus died, in the four days since Lazarus died? I imagine a lot. I imagine they'd thought it over and over. If, if only Jesus would have been here, this would not have happened. This wait was agonizing, right? When is Jesus coming? Martha's words are almost like, almost her uh, rebuking Jesus a little bit. This is the relationship she has. But then she catches herself in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So, so I don't know if you've had this experience in prayer. You say an honest thought to God and you're like, but I know and you kind of do the thing where you're like, I know this is what I'm supposed to say. This is what we see here. We, we see her like, where were you, Lord? But I know you know everything. And so we see an example of honest prayer and then sort of religion catching up to us, right? But I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't correct her for her words. He, he just is with her. Why? Because it's not sinful to tell God how you really feel. That's not wrong. That, that sounds like something wrong, maybe based on what you've been taught. Um, and and I, you know, we're not saying don't be reverent as you approach God, but God is in relationship with us. Jesus is the full picture of what God is like. So if Martha can approach Jesus this way, you can approach Jesus this way and the Father this way as you pray by the power of the Spirit. So some of us we have feelings that we haven't fully shared with God. And I'm telling you, in your prayer life, you being real honest with God is more about you than it is about God. He already knows that you're feeling that. Right? Don't forget he's omniscient. He knows everything about you. So when you spill your guts to God, it's more about you receiving his presence and his healing more than God actually knowing. Because God is more patient and more accepting than we can ever fathom. He, he, want, he invites us, pour it out to me. That, that's what he wanted from Habakkuk, if you go back in the Old Testament. That's what he uh, accepts from David, the, the honesty of his 
prayers, and that's what he's allowing here with Martha. Notice Jesus' response, and, and Martha's then her confession. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha replies in verse 24, I know that he's going to rise in the resurrection on the last day, as if she were saying, yeah, I know that, but what about right now? He's dead right now. What about this moment? And then Jesus says to her a line that, if you'll think about it, will just blow your mind. This is Jesus for the few times that he does that, just saying, listen, understand who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not the path to something that's going to happen. It's me. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked her the question, that's the question for you and I, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus himself is the resurrection and is your life? This is the sixth time that Jesus uses one of his famous I am statements in the book of John. And then notice Martha continues to confess in verse 24. Yet, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. I love that, that tense there, that you're coming into the world. Jesus is still coming into the world. She, she'd been tested with grief and loss like many of us have been tested. And she allowed Jesus to pull her forward like gold refined in that fire. And, and it, many of you know Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That beautiful confession. This confession is, is just as powerful, just as value, valuable. This remarkable woman of faith. I mean, I don't think Martha and Mary even get enough credit for, for following Jesus like they did. I mean, in this moment, she is choosing to believe in Jesus even though she's faced with the reality of death in this broken world. Now, while Martha is meeting with Jesus, Mary's still in the house. It's like a role reversal here a little bit from the other story we know of them, right? And, and as, traditional, uh, as was traditional with funerals then, uh, the mourners who were in the house were either sitting on the floor or they were sitting on little tiny, like little low stools that they brought. And so all of Mary and Martha's furniture gets moved to the side, and so after these sisters return from the grave, from the processional and the spices and all that stuff we talked about, they eat a traditional meal, and I found this interesting, of lentils, boiled eggs, and round loaves of bread, which are all round things, which symbolizes that life is rolling on into eternity. And so there's beautiful symbolism in their life. And I, I suspect, though, um, maybe you've been through this. You, you have like the funeral and then you eat at the funeral like meal that you have right after, but then maybe you don't eat for a few days after that. You're just like not in the mood after you've lost someone. So Mary was probably disheveled in appearance because, uh, again, the mourners would not clean themselves. They wouldn't wash their feet. They wouldn't wear sandals after they've lost someone for a period of time. And so um, this day, the fourth day when Jesus arrives, is the peak of all of this. So we can guess that Mary is looking a little rough. She's looking like she lost someone and has been crying. Her face is probably all puffy. Her eyes are all red. She's been weeping. And so she had no idea what had gone on between Martha and Jesus outside the house. But I want you to notice how Jesus enters into their grief. This is verse 28. 
When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's that little line again, that refrain. It's, it's the song that's on their lips, if you will. It's what they've been saying to each other, and now they're saying it to Jesus. Maybe that's uh, an example for us of prayer. We have this inner talk, and Jesus is inviting us to say it to him. And then one of the most deep, beautiful things about the humanity of Jesus comes out in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, it's weird to think that that would be one of your favorite verses. I don't know if you have like a life verse, right? Like you pick a verse out of the Bible, it's my life verse. This could be it. Because it shows you that Jesus is fully in this human experience. The, the word that gets translated into was deeply moved comes from an ancient Greek word that actually describes the sound a horse makes when it snorts. Okay? So when taken in this text context, this is implying that Jesus let out an involuntary sound, like an involuntary gasp or that, that guttural noise you make when you hear horrible news and you're moved. Just, ugh. That kind of sound, the wind just like let out of him. One translator says this, he gave way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble. So here's the point. Jesus is so caught up, so empathetic to the sister's emotion that he is involuntarily gasping with them. He is in the moment with them. He feels their sorrow. Have you ever felt somebody else's sorrow to the point where you just, noises come out of you that you didn't even try? But notice that this verse ends by saying that he was troubled. Mary and Martha's difficulties and sorrows are now part of Jesus' own sorrows. This is empathy at its finest. This is the perspective that we need to see from Jesus. Verse 34 and 35 go on. He said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He didn't wail. That's not, the, that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is when you're just standing still and you hear that news and those big giant tears just fall out of your eyes. That's what's happening here. We have a great God. We have a Savior who loves us, who might delay and stay away, allowing us to go through extreme difficulty, and then he shows up and enters into our sorrow with us. He enters the sorrow that he could have prevented, right? Jesus could have prevented this, but instead he enters that in such a way that he gasps and he's troubled and he begins to weep. That's the perspective that Jesus wants us to have. If you're hurting, he wants you to know that he is weeping with you. He's not a stoic God who doesn't care about anything. Neither is God the Father. 
Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if you see Jesus weeping, that's giving you the hint that this is the nature of God himself. Jesus knows our pain. God feels our pain. The Holy Spirit feels your pain, whatever it is. And so uh, again, we don't have a high priest who can't be touched with our feelings. God is not off in an ivory tower. He's with us in the moment and he shares in our sorrow. So maybe you feel that God is a little passive sometimes in connection with the things that you're dealing with. Maybe you don't know all the particulars of why God is doing or not doing what you want him to do, but we can know that somehow his delay is not because he doesn't love us. His inaction is not because he doesn't love us. Remember, Jesus loved Martha and Mary, and so therefore he waited two more days. Verses 36 and 37, this love was evident to the people around. The Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's an interesting way to show that they believed. They knew he opened the eyes of the blind man. Why didn't he act here? And so after these weird mixed reactions, Jesus asked to be taken to the tomb. Now, this is interesting stuff. A typical tomb in this time had eight places to bury a body. My, one of my commentaries said eight occupants, which I thought was a strange way to say it. But it's basically a hollowed out room, probably in the side of a hill. And it had three indentations per side and two at the back where you could put a body. And so Lazarus' tomb could well have already been occupied with other bodies from previous years. The likelihood is that it probably was. And so Jesus asks for the stone to be rolled away. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Right? And all of us would understand that. I mean, we, Jimler and I were talking earlier, like if there's other bodies in there even, there's, there's stuff you don't want to see in there. That's hard to imagine. All this misery, we're weeping and crying, and now we're going to have to deal with this foul odor? I mean, no. Why would you want to look at this? She, she doesn't understand. Her perspective is still too low. She doesn't understand what Jesus wants to do. But Jesus said to her, and, and hear the love in his voice, didn't I tell you, don't you remember I told you that if you believed, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So picture the scene. The stone is rolled away. They can probably look in and see Lazarus' body, right? He's got white linen. It's probably still pretty white laying there. Possibly they're looking at other bodies which aren't looking so good. And the, the crowd presses forward. Maybe you've been in this situation. Everything gets a little quiet. Everybody's kind of, what's going to happen? And the sisters who've been weeping, puffy-faced, red eyes, they stop now. What? Wait a minute. What's Jesus up to here? He's up to something. And so Jesus' eyes, which before have been weeping, are now, I imagine, just searing with power in his eyes because he knows what's about to happen. And suddenly Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And we know that he cries out with a loud voice 
so that everybody around can, see, can hear. He didn't have to do that. It's not like some spell where he has to get to a certain decibel level for it to take effect. No, he does it so that everyone around can comprehend what's going on. If you remember back, he shouts out in the temple in one of those confrontations for the sake of everyone around to see what's going on. He wants everyone to see that what he said a few verses ago about him being the resurrection and the life is true. So that's the scene. The man who died came out. I love that John does this, so you can't make a mistake. If he said Lazarus came out, the man who died. Lazarus, don't forget, this guy who was dead. He came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so the, the I mean, imagine being there. You're like, I see Lazarus. There, now the tomb is, right? And you're doing the double take of like, he was there, but now he's there. He's standing up, but he should be laying down. And what's going on? And they see Lazarus' body uh, as, they, as they start to see him move. And, and then he stands up and then he's like coming out, I guess, like a mummy into the sunlight, right? It's like a crazy scene. And Martha and Mary, I mean, I don't know what I would do if that was me. You, you start to unwrap him. Are you thinking about what's actually happening right in front of you? This is crazy. And then came just, I imagine, just joy. Like, this can't be true, but it's true. Like, have you ever been so happy you don't even believe your own senses? That this is what's going on here. The funeral becomes a party. And I think that's a beautiful way to talk about the gospel of Jesus. That the funeral of your life, if you trust in Jesus, becomes a celebration because of the resurrection power of Jesus. See, that perspective is everything. As believers, we know that all our times of sorrow are eventually going to turn into times of joy. Revelation 21 verse 4 is a promise to us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But listen, it doesn't say he's going to stop the tears from happening. He's going to wipe away the tears. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, this is the former things. COVID-19 and pain and death, this is the former things. And there's coming a time when we'll look back on this and say, that's no more. That time is gone. This is a great verse about a fantastic future, right? Like we love that. But what about this moment right now? What do we do now? Well, because of the Holy Spirit living in you and the same power that raised Christ from the dead living in you, you can actually choose your perspective. This is what I think is meant when we read in the New Testament that God in Christ has made a mystery known to us that was hidden in the past. That Jesus gives us the ability to see with divine perspective through him. Instead of living lives that can only see what's right in front of us because of Jesus, because of his work, because he is the resurrection and the life, and his word over your life and my life is that he himself is that for us. Because of that, we can choose to believe scriptures like John 11, and we can see that help is on the way even if we can't see that it's on the way. We can choose to believe that God is in control and that somehow, even if he is delaying and we feel like he is not hearing us, we can lean on his word and not our ability to see and we can um, give him the big questions. We can 
believe that his silence, it can be a silence of love. Just like it was for Martha and Mary, and don't forget Lazarus. I'm sure Lazarus laid there thinking, where's Jesus? Breathing slower and slower, realizing his life was leaving his earthly body, wondering what was happening, and then what? The first thing he hears is the voice of Jesus saying, come out, Lazarus. We, we can believe that Jesus is inviting us to ask the big questions. Ask him the questions. Why didn't you act? Where were you? And let him be present with you in that. Pour your heart out to him. He cares so much that he's going to enter into your sorrows. That, that's a beautiful thing, that he feels our pain and he weeps along with us in the midst of our weeping. He understands us. Listen, he understands you better than you understand yourself. He does. But that's not all. As good as all of that is, the reality is that Jesus brings more than all of that. He brings us, this is the, the key of all of this, he brings us his very own presence. That's the ultimate prize. He brings himself to us so that he can be with us. We can be with him. He can be our God. We can be his people, which means that he brings his joy and his resurrection life into our current difficulties, afflictions, points of pain, whatever it is. So the question for us is, where is your perspective? Is it from the vantage point of down here where there's very little information and it's hard to see? Or will you choose to look from the perspective from Christ who is seated at the right hand of God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this group of people who, are, um, who you've made into a family. We thank you for those of us who are uh, part of us, but who are not here this morning. And we pray in the weeks and months that follow that um, as we begin to see things return to normal, we will see more and more of us uh, be here on a Sunday so that we can see more and more of the picture of your people in the world. It's a, a beautiful symbol of what you're doing. And I pray for those this week that are traveling. I know there's a, a number of couples from our church family who are traveling, and we just ask your uh, hand of blessing over them and protection. And, and we do pray for um, our church family, that you would give us opportunities to uh, share this good news of your resurrection life with other people around us so that uh, as the time moves forward, we would see more and more people come to know and love you because we know that you love us. And we thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. And uh, those of you watching online, just want to say thank you again for uh, watching. You can connect with us at lansdown.church. Um, if any of you have questions about anything I said today about the meeting and masks and all that, please ask me. Um, but again, uh, I, I think I mentioned this. I know I said it to a few of you. As you leave today, our six foot between households is loosened. So if you want to give hugs, shake hands, go for it, okay? It's a, it's a, little, it's a little celebration. It's good. I'm happy about it. The numbers are looking really good. And uh, I would encourage you, if uh, it's something that you're comfortable with, to uh, think about the vaccine. It may not be the right thing for you, and there's no judgment or pressure there, but uh, it is an option. And so if I can encourage you in any way, or if you have questions, I'm sure um, I can maybe point you in some things to read and look at uh, if you're interested in that. So let me just read to you Numbers chapter 6, 
as we go from here. And then I want to invite you, uh, if you're part of our church family, uh, in the room to stay. Bob is going to lead us in a time of communion, and so I'm looking forward to that. But this is Numbers chapter 6. Hear these words from God spoken over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.